Uh, jumping back into 1 Samuel 17. Last week, um, we got all the pieces on the board. Um, all the characters are where they're supposed to be. The Philistines are there. The Israelite army is there. Um, King Saul is there for the Israelites. A champion named Goliath is there for the Philistines. Um, the king of Philistia goes unnamed and unmentioned, which I think is fascinating. Um, but a last-minute strange addition, a last-minute addition to the account is a man named Jesse who has three sons who are at the battle um, and an eighth son who, though typically a shepherd, um, Jesse has sent him to the front lines with some supplies and some snacks, and his name is David. Uh, David gets up early. Uh, David's probably 11 or 12 years old. Um, just to, uh, that's the estimate that makes most sense to me is he's probably 11 or 12 years old. Um, uh, he gets up early in the morning, makes provision for his sheep, and he heads out. The Philistine champion has made a habit of coming out every morning and every evening to taunt and threaten the Israelite army. David arrives just in time for either the 40th or the 41st day of this. Now, we don't know for sure. So join me in the Valley of Elah 3,000 years ago, as now that we've got all the pieces on the board, it's time to, to start the action and see what's going to happen. Here we have a day in which Goliath the champion while he is strapping on 125 pounds of bronze, um, his doom is approaching with bread and cheese. And we're going to start in verse 21. Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went to greet his brothers. As he talked to them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him and all the men of Israel when they saw the man fled from him and were much afraid. So the question is, as everyone else flees, every time they see Goliath, they get deeply afraid. The words, the Hebrew words here, there's several different Hebrew words here for fear. They're intense. Um, they are all very impressed by this champion, this giant, this scary killer. But what does David see? We're going we're gonna to experience through this whole chapter that David seems to be having a totally different experience than everybody else is. I, I don't know exactly what it is. I hope you, as we're unpacking this, you will see that. Hopefully you notice some strange little details, even in that little introductory bit. But, but here you have everyone else, all of the Israelites are responding and have been doing so for a month and a half to this champion coming out into the valley of Elah, mocking them, and their response is some version of, oh, whatever shall we do? Here we are stuck. We are terrified. We are afraid. Whatever shall we do? There is a champion, and we don't think we can take him. Whatever shall we do? There's this, there's this giant, and he's going to kill anyone who comes out there. <clears throat> whatever shall we do? The culture seems to be turning against us. Our own government doesn't seem to be as friendly to us as it used to be. What we see around us, friends, friends turning against us and, and, and persecution um, being, being rising up in our land. This is the same response several different commentaries and pastors pointed out. This seems to be the response sometimes of the modern church is when we run into some kind of problem, we run into some kind of difficulty, and we instantly turn into the Israelite army. Oh, whatever shall we do? How could we possibly face this crisis? How could we possibly get through these difficulties? <clears throat> For 
at least 2,000 years, maybe 3,000 years, people have been looking at this passage and reminding the church to cut that out, reminding us not to see that way. We need to be learning to see as David sees, not as the people of Israel seem to be seeing, and not as Saul seems to be seeing. So Saul seems to be seeing something very, very scary. Saul is once again hiding in his tent, it seems, from this giant champion. So what is it that David sees? I'm going to unpack that in a minute. But I will tell you, Alistair Begg thinks that, uh, that David looks out on this. He sees this guy come out, taunt the armies of Israel. And David thinks, man, that is a huge target. I don't think I could miss that if I tried. Like, this is going to be a, this is going to be a breeze. That guy's huge. I mean, I just, like, he's going to, yeah, I couldn't miss him for anything. Like, I, 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 somebody needs to go down and knock him down. Like, David sees a target while everybody else sees a champion. It, it seems some version of this. Saul, on the other hand, is not a champion. Let me unpack what that means. The, the names here matter, as they always do in, in Hebrew literature. Goliath, it's hard to know what the word Goliath means, what the name Goliath means. There's a lot of disagreement on this. Um, it may mean exile, someone sent out. It, it may mean exposed, someone who's not afraid to be out there. Those, you can see these connections make sense. Some think that his name means ravaging someone who destroys what he touches. And that would work too. One commentary points out that it may be that in his language, Goliath means lion man. And that would certainly make sense based on what we remember about the Philistine people, how they, the, the way they projected themselves and presented themselves was <clears throat> as some giant lion type thing with, with pushed out hair and, and beards and everything to look like a big mane. This is the picture that want to create. That's not what, that one doesn't show that, but you can imagine if he had feathered out a headpiece out around, the, around his head like that. So we don't know for sure, but it's something terrifying. We know what David means. David means beloved. Um, and we went back, we, uh, Paul talked about that a few weeks ago, about the name meaning here for David and how intriguing it is and what that may mean about his relationship with Jesse. But maybe most significantly in this passage is what the word champion means. In a literal sense, champion means the word, means the concept of in between. Now that may not make a lot of sense to you, but let me show you why the name champion means this. So let's put a picture up here on the wall. We see here the, the Israelite army and the Philistine army facing across the valley of Elah. And in between them <coughs> is the no man's land. Now, I remember that from our world history, World War I. You had the, the trenches and you had the no man's land out there. And the no man's land is named that because no man goes out there and lives. It's the in-between area. You don't want to be out there when the trouble starts. You want to be up on the hillside. So the next picture, this is the Valley of Elah, modern times. And you can see the sloping hillsides, which go in both directions. Well, we know from Obi-Wan Kenobi that if you've got the high ground, you're going to win, right? So here you have, the, the, if you're on the edge, so if you're up on the, the hillside and the enemy army is down in the valley, you actually, that may not be true in Star Wars, but it is true in real life, is that you coming down on them gives you a huge advantage in the combat. So neither army wants to be the one in the valley. They both want to be up on the hillside. So they're staying up on the hillsides, taunting each other, and they may come down towards the center and and pick on each other and have little skirmishes or whatever, but who, so who is, who goes down in the in-between? Who goes down into the no man's land? Champions do. 
Champions are who go down there because they, they're not afraid. And Goliath owns the in-between. He's a champion. Um, he's not afraid to be down there. He drags a shield bearer down there, and he dares anyone up on the other side to join him in the in-between in the no-man's land. Well, David has just shown up, verse 22. David, it says, this is, this is the other thing I want you to note, because you probably caught this as you heard that description you probably noticed verse 22, David left the things in charge of the keepers of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. Now, we've talked about how often we see a cl very clear uh, comparison between David and Saul during these passages, right? Sometimes they're obvious. Sometimes there's more subtle. David knows what to do with the baggage. What do you do with the baggage? That's where you put the baggage. It's not where you hide Saul didn't know that about the baggage. Saul thought the baggage was a place to hide. Remember the day of his coronation, he's hiding in the baggage. It's the, the next time you see this Hebrew word right here, kelai, is here, and it is the same word used with Saul. It's an obvious connection between the two of them. Where would Saul be today? I can tell you where Saul is. He's hiding somewhere. It turns out he's hiding in his tent now, not hiding in the baggage, not David. David drops his stuff off with the baggage and runs to the front line to find his brothers. <clears throat> David overhears the talk among the soldiers as he's greeting his brothers, verse 23. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. The men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. The king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Oh, you got to love the fantasies of frightened boys. Um, this, is what's, this is all that's going on here. They're all now telling a story. Man, I, I, I wish I'd been the one who saved Princess Leia. I, that means I could have the, like I could be famous and I could do the, it's, it's, this, is the this is what's happening here. They're all, they're all going to be fantasizing about what, man, you know what? I probably should go out there. In fact, you know what? I think I might go out there um, tomorrow and, uh, and maybe later, I think maybe somebody's calling me. I, I, you know, if it, if it wasn't for my knee, I'd be out there right now because, you know, if I could, I could take him down and then, and then the king would be so proud of me and I'd probably get a princess out of the deal and some money and I wouldn't have to pay tax. This is exactly what's happening. And David's overhearing this. I remember David's a kid. So what David is going to do naturally is try to find out, I mean, is this the truth? Do they know what they're talking about? Or is this just some kind of fantasy on their part? He wants to know. So he's going to ask. Because remember, David, for already, once David hears Goliath talking, David is already measuring a casket for Goliath in his head. He's like, man, somebody's going to have to build a big one. I'll have to shorten it for him a little bit, make it a little easier. We'll get there. So here's the, the, the David verse, ver, David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him? So they tell him, like, no, no, this, this really, this kind of stuff is really what would be done. David wants to clarify it. I, I love that David, who is, who is completely unimpressed by Goliath, <laughs> he does not describe him as big, giant, huge, scary, terrifying, the way everybody else described him. The only descriptive word we get from David for Goliath is uncircumcised. 
I don't know if this is a statement of sacredness, like, like I'm part of the holy people and he's not, or if this just flat up locker room guy talk, right? Like he's not even circumcised. How hard should it be to take him down? Like this is a, this, how, his, his conversation. Um, another pastor points out that while everyone sees this champion, as I said, David already just sees a target he can't miss. So let's start our deeper conversation here because I think right here is where we catch what's really going on. Everybody else is talking in terms of Israel or Saul. David begins to drop a different name. The name David begins to drop is the living God. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And this, I think, is what David gets that maybe we, and certainly the assemblies of Israel and Philistia, did not. Are we in a world? This is a real question. Do we actually live in a world with a living God? Do we live our lives that way? In every little thing that we do, in every hardship that we face, in every fear and anxiety and challenge, do we recognize that there is a living and active God in the mix right now? When we reach out and do what we believe we should do, are we taking into account that there is a living God? Is there actually a God to obey here and now? Is there actually a God to trust in here and now? I think many, many of us live with, we may on Sunday morning proclaim with song and word that there is a God and we believe in him, but we live the rest of our life as though there isn't. We are agnostic or, or atheist in the way we live day to day, moment to moment. And David, as we're going to continue to unpack seems to live in this, in this just situational, positional understanding that in every single little thing, there is a living God. <coughs> every bit of it. So David's, let's, let's unpack that. So as David's asked his question, little brother asked the question, verse 28, now Eliab, the eldest brother, heard what he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil in your heart. You've come down to see the battle. This feels really harsh. Now, I've always thought this feels weirdly harsh. I know there's big brother, little brother stuff going on here, right? And you've got a brother who's probably at least a decade older. I mean, you've probably in his, in his early 20s, Eliab is... He's the eldest brother. There's seven brothers between them, or six brothers between them. So, so certainly there's a big age gap at least. But, but Eliab seems overly harsh here. You, you're just down here to watch the show. Like, I know you. You're, you're just such a, such a punk little kid filled with pride. Where did you leave those five sheep that you're supposed to be taking care of? Um, it is intriguing that the, actually the Bible does tell us that David has properly taking care of the sheep. So David can't even be called out on that correctly by Eliab. But so Eliab does, what is this? This had never crossed my mind before studying this this time around. A few days, weeks, months, we really don't know, before this moment, there was a moment in their hometown when the crazy wandering wizard, priest, prophet uh, Samuel showed up in secret at the home of Jesse. And he brought with him a horn of oil. 
And he shows up, and, and they have the sacrifice, and Jesse is the guest of honor, and he says, hey, Jesse, bring forth your sons. I need to anoint one of them. And there's Eliab and the, and the, other, the next six brothers. Jesse's like, hey, I got all seven of them here. And here comes Samuel, the most famous man in Israel, with this horn. What does this mean? What's going on here? This is clearly very, very important. This is some huge honor about to be placed on someone. Samuel walks up to Eliab, strong, fit, handsome, the right age, the right family. And Jesse's like, here we go, perfect. And Samuel says, no, not him. No, no, no. God judges the heart. He doesn't pass. Get another one? Well, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we got a second one. Nope, not him. Nope, not him. Nope, not him. Nope, not all the way down the line. So this is it, the seven sons. Jesse's like, I mean, well, technically we have, there's another one. I mean, if, I mean, if you want to go technical about it, there's another son. He's out in the, the sheep. Okay, call him. Jesse's like, fine, we'll get, this, we'll get this taken care of. Get that last box checked. They go get David. David shows up and God speaks to Samuel and says, that's the one. What was it about David? That made David so special. What was it about David's heart? I think it's that David heart, David's heart lives in the existence in which there is a living God. And Samuel, in front of seven brothers and a father who didn't even invite David to the party, anoints David, pours the horn of oil over David's head, anointing him as the next king in rejection of Eliab. And I think that's a big part of what's going on here. Eliab is still stung from that rejection. He, they, they literally declare him, he's going to be the next king, and then they send him back out to the sheep. That's how they feel about David. He's shown up. David responds, what have I done? Was it not but a word? In other words, I was just asking. That's all he's saying here. He turned away from the toward, the toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they then repeated them before Saul, and he, Saul, sent for him, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Now, we're about to get into a few steps here that are so strange to me that I really can't even wrap my brain around what's going on here. What's weird to me is you have this 11 or 12-year-old boy, and apparently the soldiers of Israel take him seriously. Eliab doesn't, but everybody else seems to take him seriously. So seriously, they take his words to the king. And the king takes him seriously calls him in, literally calls him in and, and starts a conversation with David. I just, I just don't understand this. Th this. Why do they take him seriously? Saul, by the way, this is Saul's introduction to the story is here. Saul's introduction is to have a conversation with David to find out, David, what's the deal? And David, once again, a servant of Saul is going to have to solve Saul's problem. How many times have we seen this? Over and over again. So David says, let your servant go out and fight Goliath. I don't understand why this is not shame, so shaming of Saul. I mean, any of the, it's just hard for me to imagine as a man, like any of the men in the room imagine going like, wow, okay, fine, I'll go fight the giant. I mean, isn't that what Saul's supposed to do here? You ever been in one of those moments when you're like, I don't know, up on a, up on a ledge or something overlooking a river? And you're like, oh, we got to jump. It's like 40 feet down. I'm scared to go. And then the kid goes ahead of you. You're like, oh, great. Now I have to go, right? I mean, now there's no, I have no choice now. Now I have to jump. Wonderful, right? That's, that's, the, that's the manly experience. When, and so for the kid to show up and go like, fine, I'll go fight him. 
Why aren't there lines of men going, oh, okay, kid, thank you, okay. That's not what happens. Verse 33, Saul says to David, (coughs) look at this. Saul's going to try to talk David out of this. You're not able to go up against this Philistine to fight with him. You are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. He's been killing people since before you were born, kid. Verse 34, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. (laughs) Don't you love that's the start of his resume? Hey, there's a big giant champion out in the middle of the field. That's nothing. I used to take care of sheep. <laughs> so, uh, when, when a lion or a bear and, uh, came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. If he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, the Lord has delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, and he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. That still boggles my mind. This is still the moment when Saul's supposed to go, wow, man, I have just been called out by a kid. I recognize it's time. And, and, you know, he's supposed to then get ready to go. So I've always pictured at this moment, like Saul starts, you you get this shrugged shoulder look from Saul. Saul starts gathering his armor, but not for what you think. How is Saul not inspired or at least guilted by this kid? Why does he allow David to do it? Now, I want to comment. I I, I know we're hard on Saul and it's only going to get worse. But we literally have one noble moment in Saul's, the rest of Saul's life that we're going to get to look at. That's it. It's only going to get worse. And yet at the same time, I would say, I mean, how many of you have had to look past my vices and my sins and try to love me anyway, or at least try to love me anyway, right? And keep trying, be willing to make that effort. It's not like when we, when we look at Saul, we're not going like, look how much better we are than Saul. Not at all. That's, that's not the case. That would just be rank hypocrisy. None of us are any better than this. But it still is shocking to me. Is this just revealing a shocking level of desperation? They're so desperate after a month and a half of listening to Goliath come out that they'll try anything. If anyone will do it, they'll just do it. It's just going to get stronger. But from David's perspective, again, now let's look at it from David's perspective, there's nothing special about this guy. He's not special. I mean, I've, I've, I've killed bear. I've killed lot. Don't you wish there was more detail on that, by the way? Don't you love this? I mean, this 11-year-old kid, 12-year-old kid, which means in the past, maybe when he was like 8, 9, 10 years old, out with the sheep, and, and sometimes I sling, and sometimes I kill the lion and the bear with my sling, but sometimes it gets past me, it gets one of the sheep, and takes off, so I just run it down, and if it doesn't drop the sheep, I grab it by the mane and kill it. Oh, you do that, do you? That's what you do? You just, that's how you do that. You chase down the lion or the bear, and you grab it and kill it. That's how you're supposed to deal with that moment. I believe David is so comfortable with the truth of a living God that it comes across as though he's fearless. The truth is, it's just irrelevant whether he's fearless. It doesn't make any difference. (coughs) He's been singing, consider all those years of spending all day alone in the wilderness with the sheep, singing with his lyre, writing songs about God being his shepherd, just like he is the shepherd of these little sheep. And, by, and when I say David was alone all those years, what I mean is David was never alone all those years out there with the sheep. 
I'm sure he felt alone sometimes, but at some point he became so comfortable with the truth that there is a living God that David understands that, that he is never alone. He doesn't face any moment alone. He doesn't face the boring moments alone. He doesn't face the tedious moments alone. He doesn't face what seem like meaningless and insignificant moments like we talked about last week. He doesn't face those alone. He faces those with a living God who is active in his life. And he certainly doesn't face the bear or the lion alone. He was never alone. There's always a shepherd, a living God. A lion doesn't change that. A bear doesn't change that. Certainly, a giant doesn't change that. David's normal, everyday stuff involves a living God. So verse 38, one of those weird moments, Saul clothed David in his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. David said to Saul, I can't go with these. I've not tested them. So David put them off. Again, we love this moment. It's such a great visual for us, this imagining of Saul going, I'm going to give David my armor. As I was searching to try to find a visual of this, I found something just that's better. I don't think it was this bad. I don't think it was quite this bad, but <clears throat> I don't know what's going on here. What is Saul thinking? I can't put myself in Saul's head here. I even wonder, was Saul hoping that people would think it was him out there? Oh, look, there's Saul going out there to face the giant. I don't, I don't know what Saul's thinking. The, the best thing you can think is, oh, Saul is so concerned for David's safety, he wants him to wear armor. I've got a crazy idea. How about this? If you're so concerned about this kid going out to face Goliath, why don't you do that? use that armor, what it was made for, and you put it on and go face the giant? There's a crazy thought. But no, I'm so concerned about this kid who's going to go face this killer that I'm going to give him my armor? What a, what a horrible way to engage with this moment. Maybe, and this is my only hope for everyone in this moment and honestly for myself, Maybe they just are able to perceive that David gets it, and they don't. Maybe they could just tell. They could just tell, like, this kid understands. He gets this. This is clearly being orchestrated by God, and we don't want to get in God's way. Maybe he understands this is about the Lord, and it's not about Israel, and it's not just about Saul, and it's not just about the Philistines. This is about the Lord. Maybe the only way of being a man and a leader is to believe that God is orchestrating this, and maybe even Saul recognizes that humbling and even humiliating Saul in this moment is not a bug, it's a feature. Part of this moment that Saul even recognizes is, I am being humiliated by a boy going to do my job. David, on the other hand, presumably now dressed like any shepherd boy, um, decides to go out to face Goliath. And when he walks out into the in-between, David immediately becomes what? A champion. This is where champions go and only champions go, is the in-between. David goes to the in-between, and champion to champion is going to face down Goliath. Verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch, his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. David has lived for a long time with only one close friend, and that's God. His next closest friends are a sling and a liar, probably. 
So, so as David goes out there and grabs these five smooth stones, so much has been built of this, and I'll talk next time a little bit more about this. Is this, is this because he knows Goliath has four relatives who are also giants? And we'll read that next week, maybe. There's nothing in the passage to indicate David thinks he's going to face them, but maybe David's oh, so aware. You don't, you don't get that sense, but maybe that's the right answer. Is it that David is thinking, well, it's not like I only face one. There's an entire army of Philistines. I need to be prepared to take down as many as I need to. I think that's certainly possible. Is it that he's just pragmatic enough to like, I might miss with the first couple. I better have five. I better have a handful. I also think that's possible. There's nothing lacking in faith and being pragmatic. We're going to talk a lot about that next time, is that our natural temptation is to try to turn um, uh, the pragmatic realities against faith. That's just silliness. Um, we'll talk next time about that. <clears throat> but, but my favorite uh, theory actually came from carrying a sling. So when I teach in Israel, we actually pull out, we have some slings, and we use them uh, in the Valley of Elah and use them, in, and maybe I'll try to sling some next week uh, in the service. But uh, um, don't worry, it'll be like mints or something, not, not rocks. Uh, uh, but the, uh, um, I, so I carried this around for most of a year, this, this sling. This is a, a small one. Um, and I carried it around for most of a year. And here's what I discovered. When you carry a sling, you notice rocks um, all the time. Like every, end of every day when I took my keys and knives and stuff out of my pocket, it was always like, and there were always two or three rocks in there that I didn't remember picking up. That if I just saw like, oh, that's a good one. Ooh, and there's an even better one. Oh, and there's a good one. And stick them in your pocket for later. <clears throat> my, my, my guess is David picked up five smooth stones because there were five really good smooth stones right there. This is what boggles my, this, but this is what I want you to see from this. David doesn't think he's going to be dead in 15 minutes. David's picking up stones for the future. Because David, David is assuming, like this is, this is God's moment, right? This is God's battle. This is a, this is a for, for um, by the way, we don't know if he had a, this is a combat uh, size. This is not the way they looked, obviously. But this is the size of a combat sling that the Israelites and the people in the Middle East used at that time. Because see, the, the, the idea of, uh, was that this is the size of sling stone that they would have used in combat. So it's about the size of a billiard ball, and it would come at you at about 100 miles an hour. And there was even a group of, of Benjaminites who could sling two-handed, two at the same time. That would have been terrifying. There were several armies in history at this time that the generals preferred slingers to archers. Um, they're faster and even more deadly um, than the archers were. We don't know if de maybe David had a combat sling. It's also more likely that David would have just had a simple shepherd's sling. Um, my good friend Zach Tingle made this for me. He actually wove this out of animal sinew uh, the same way that uh, theirs would have been made. It didn't even have a pad. It just has a split in the bottom where the, um, where the, the stone goes. And so you can imagine you have to have perfectly sized stones. Um, if it's slightly wrong, Jessica Anthony brought me a couple of extras um, so this one like wouldn't work. It just slides right through. You need a bigger stone than this to use um, when you're fighting somebody or when you're going after an animal. But this is, this is literally what probably what he was using. And it does say sticks. Goliath is going to reference sticks. That's because David would have had two sticks um, as a shepherd. They are staff and rod. Good. His rod and staff, they comfort me. And so you would have, he would have had two sticks with him and this sling as they come out to face each other. Um, and I think as he's walking through the Valley of Elah, he stops at the little brook that's there. He finds a good rock and he's like, oh, there's another one and another one and another one and another one. This is a normal day for David. That's what's wild to me is for everybody, all the rest of it, it's extraordinary. When you have a living God, this is a day like every day at some point. Listen, 
David knows this. At some point, David knows that this living God is going to put David in the law of a, in the paw of a lion. Or under the spear of a champion. Or to death with his own son. Or to death by old age. David knows that. It isn't that things are always going to work out for David because there's a living God. Don't, don't, don't hear that. That is not correct. It just is God's call in David's mind. He's just the sheep. God is the shepherd. Lead me into this. If this is when I die, this is when I die. That's what sheep do sometimes. He is the living shepherd, and I trust him to make that call of when to take me. Verse 41, and the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with the shield bear in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. I love that we get that bit of information again. Goliath's like, I mean, he's a good looking kid, but I mean, I'm about to kill him anyway. So the disdain here, baza, what a great word. <coughs> Contempt, despised. This kid's despicable. He's beneath me. He's nothing to me. He's showing up with a bag, a sling, and some sticks, which is what Goliath is going to say. Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you're going to come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Probably a big mistake. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. So as I wrap up this week, um, he's saying, go away, kid, or I'll feed you to the beasts. Other, only other creatures are allowed here in the in-between, the carrion animals. And Goliath makes this a God thing, whose gods are going to carry the day here. Is it the living God, or is it the dead statues of Dagon? We've already seen what happens when Dagon meets Yahweh. It doesn't go well for Dagon. Verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come at me with sword and spear and a javelin, but I come at you with the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Here you have David's version of smack talk back at Goliath. You have weapons, but I have a name. It's the name of a living God. It's the God of hosts, the God of all armies, the God of the angelic armies, the God of all things. The action words here, deliver, strike, cut, give, know, save. These are from beginning to ending, God is going to make this happen. The Philistine is enraged. You can imagine, I'll unpack this some more next time, the shouts and the cries of the Philistines, the jeers and the cheers as a child comes out dressed like a little shepherd. The incredible noise of both armies here is there in the middle of the valley of Elah. And the question is now being asked, is there a God of hosts and will he take up this battle? For whatever reason, David is convinced he will. David's going to fight this fight for him. The incredible noise and shouting does not impress David. Goliath doesn't impress David. Goliath avoided dealing with the one person he probably feared, Samuel. And instead, he faces David. And the problem is, David and Samuel's ally is the same living God. The problem is Goliath is facing the living God in either way. When we are faithful with small things or big things, is there a living God in the mix with us? So just to, to strike up your imagination, verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. 
the charging nine-and-a-half-foot-tall lion monster roaring in rage. I've always wanted this to be predicted correctly um, in some type of media. There's been a few pieces of art. There's a book that came out that I like that, that shows a, an interesting picture, shows it off pretty correctly except for the spiked headgear, uh, although the Philistines behind Goliath have it. <clears throat> Maybe the other one, there's another one that I kind of like this one, a kid one that, that shows this idea of him charging and raged. I don't know why they show them with swords instead of with that giant 15-pound spearhead, but, but here you have Goliath charging at David, and David, but go back to the other one. What I love about this one is this one shows the actually accurate what happens this monster begins to charge at David, and instead of David's legs turning to lead, like mine probably would, verse 49, it, but, I mean, it tells us that David ran quickly to meet the Philistine. David rushes at the giant at the same time. He put his hand in the bag, took out a stone, slung it, struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell to his face on the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. This is the message for us, I think, today. Last week, Goliath is doomed because of the simple, faithful obedience of a son. The simple, faithful, this is what God has put in front of me, okay? I'll do that. David didn't wake up and say, you know what I'm going to do today is kill a giant. I can't wait to go out in the middle of the Valley of Allah and become the most famous warrior in all of human history. To David, this was a day like any day. Why? Because it was a day that involved the living God. Today might be a day in which I sit and write a song. Today might be a day in which I kill a bear that's trying to take one of my sheep. Today might be a day when I just deliver some bread and cheese to the front lines. There's nothing special. When you, when you serve a living God, the normal everyday day, you never know where it's going to go. And David lives this out. This is, I think, is his challenge to us here. Will we be faithful with the small things? And will we recognize and acknowledge that God is the living God in every little moment? So if you will, stand. <clears throat> this is a great time for confession in our hearts to confess and agree with God that he is the living God, that he is living and active. He's right here with us. He lives out every day, every moment with us, second by second. And to be challenged by that and to learn to accept that and live that out as we face the hardships, as we face the challenges, as we face the doctor's appointment that's scary to us and recognize there's a living God and he's in the mix with me. And when we have those tough conversations when we're trying to love our spouses and love our kids that we go, there's a living God and he's in the mix here with me. And when it's the tiny little dumb things that seem so insignificant and he is here in the midst with me for us to be living out that truth. I don't know the specifics for you, the application, but I'll bet you do. So I want to pray over all of us that God will show that to us, help us to be faithful. Father, um, we come to you as the great shepherd, and we are your sheep, and we're trusting in you to lead us. We're comforted by you. Um, we, we accept that our role is, that, is, to, is to live in trust and faith of you, the living God. Now, you're here with us in every single moment. So no matter what we face, whether it's a simple task or a nine-and-a-half-foot-tall giant, that we would recognize what matters in this situation is not the bear, it's not the lion, it's not the giant, it's not the simple little task. It is whether or not there is a living God. And you are that living God, and I pray we will live according to the truth of that day by day. In your son's name, amen.